from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll look at Act 12 and the idea of home rule, enshrined in Wisconsin's constitution. We'll learn how local researchers are using music as a tool to try to restore movement for people with spinal cord injuries. We know there is a music movement connection, but what we haven't known for a long time is how is this music transformed to movement. That's really the focus of the research in our lab. Then we'll meet a social media influencer and blogger who's helping demystify car care and maintenance. I'm not teaching how to take apart your car or any kind of fancy information. I'm bringing the basics that everybody should know that they should have been taught, that they were often not taught. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Act 12 did a lot of things in Wisconsin. For most municipalities, it simply sent more money to the community. But here in Milwaukee, it also took a lot of things away. Specifically, it took power from our local government to make decisions on how to run the city. Now the Milwaukee Common Council is contemplating next steps as it seeks to retake some of that power. It might all come down to the concept of home rule, a principle enshrined by the state constitution. Larry Sandler is a local writer whose piece on home rule was featured in this month's Milwaukee Magazine. He joins me now to talk about it. Larry, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. Thank you, Joy. It's good to be back. What is the concept of home rule as it's laid out in Wisconsin's Constitution? Home rule means basically that cities and villages have the right to run their own affairs. Uh, The exact language of the Constitution is to say they can determine, quote, determine their local affairs and government, unquote. And so it's a very broad power and even perhaps more broadly defined in state law, which predates the Constitution, saying, you know, to act for the government and good order of the city, for its commercial benefit, and for the health, safety, and welfare of the public. So if you take that literally, they can do just about anything that they need to, unless it contradicts something else in the Constitution, as you would expect, or if there's a state law on matters, quote, of statewide concern, unquote, uh, that are supposed to affect all municipalities equally. Mm. It does seem overly broad. And I think for people who are familiar with Wisconsin politics, they're going to go, well, it seems like the legislature has a lot of power over what municipalities do. Uh, We'll get into Act 12 in just a bit. But this provision to the Constitution was enacted in the 1920s. It has been tested a number of times since then. How has the home rule provision in the Constitution been tested through the courts? So the... First court case was in 1926, and that was on the question of who had the right to say how tall the buildings could be in Milwaukee. And in that case, the state Supreme Court ruled that Milwaukee had the right to decide how tall its buildings could be, and the state legislature couldn't. So that was an early victory, but unfortunately for the city, that was really their only victory. And since then, the courts have ruled against them in a number of cases. Uh, Most strikingly, in 2016, when the 
court ruled against the city of Milwaukee on the question of residency. Uh, the legislature had uh, essentially repealed the residency requirements for Milwaukee and other cities, and Milwaukee challenged that in court and lost. It, it's interesting how infrequently it seems that home rule wins because it was put into the Constitution be- because it was felt that there was all of this overreach from the state government into these local communities. You talk to a number of political scientists about this issue. What do they believe is the importance of the concept of home rule? Why is it enshrined in the Constitution? So at the time that it was enacted, uh, legislatures were way up in the city's businesses, more, more, much more than they are now, where just about everything had to go through the legislature. The city councils and village boards had very little power. Uh, and so the idea was that uh, that didn't make a lot of sense. And so it made more sense for aldermen and village board members and mayors to make decisions about their own cities, about things that affected them. And that also meant that rural legislators were not deciding things for the city, and city legislatures weren't deciding things for the small towns. Yeah. Now, let's dig into Act 12 a bit, because that's really what's at the heart of this conversation. For people who are unfamiliar with it, what did Act 12 do? The primary purpose of it was to help out Milwaukee and Milwaukee County Uh, and to some extent local governments all over the state with their fiscal problems because state aid had not kept up with their expenses and they were limited also by state law in their ability to tax. That's another way that the home world had been eroded because the state put levy limits on them. And so the primary purpose was financial aid, increasing shared revenue, allowing the city of Milwaukee and Milwaukee County to a new sales tax in the city's case, an increased sales tax in the county's case, uh, and also to take over their pension systems eventually. But the legislature added all of these strings to it that really infringed, in the local officials' view, on home rule in terms of putting very specific rules down about, like, how many police officers and even how many detectives and how many firefighters and how much you spend on the police and fire department, and whether there are police in schools, and who serves on the Fire and Police Commission, and taking away some of the Fire and Police Commission's powers, and how you can pay for the streetcar. And so quite a lot of restrictions on, you know, what the city thought was its business. Sure. And it seems like The vast majority of these stipulations, although Act 12 is a bill that covers the entire state, municipalities throughout the state, it seems like the majority of these stipulations were just targeted at Milwaukee and Milwaukee County. You mentioned the Fire and Police Commission, of course, the streetcar. These are things that are only in the city of Milwaukee. The Common Council has taken issue with it. It seems like there is there a lawsuit currently or is there a lawsuit that is pending or how are they challenging these rules? There is not currently a lawsuit. The Common Council has requested an opinion from the city attorney uh, that was supposed to be done by January 1st. I'm not sure if it is yet, but once that opinion is in, the 
aldermen will look at that and decide whether they want to file a suit. I know the mayor is not too enthusiastic about that idea, and it probably would get a negative reaction from the state legislature as well. <laughs> how how does the state legislature, I guess, justify having all of these stipulations on these funds, especially when we look at the origin of the shared revenue program in which this was really money that was meant to be used by municipalities as they saw fit, as they chose? Yes, that's exactly right. In fact, you know, the shared revenue program originated uh, at the same time as the state income tax, and the local governments were supposed to get a share of the state income tax, in fact, the majority share of the state income tax, and things have obviously changed a lot since then. But uh, the legislature approached this, you know, really from sort of a, a quid pro quo standpoint that um, you want something from us, we want something from you. And they felt that they had the right to put on these stipulations. And I also quoted some political scientists as saying that um, the legislature has been catering to certain interest groups, and the fire and police unions are among those interest groups. You know, they are generally aligned more with Republicans. And so in the residency case, and very much in Act 12, you saw that the Republican-led legislature was taking actions that benefited those unions' members. Mm. It's interesting that they view this as kind of a quid pro quo because, of course, as, as you just mentioned, this is money that we've all sent in. It's not as though this is money that the legislature made somehow in other in other ways. It's money that comes from all of these communities, including Milwaukee, much of it coming from Milwaukee and the surrounding areas. So the idea that they're doing us a favor by giving us back our money and, and so they have to put all these new strings on it. It does seem a little odd. It does seem a little odd. Yeah, I, I think it seems odd to the local officials also. But again, as you mentioned, you know, we've gotten away a lot from the original idea of shared revenue. And so it doesn't have the linkage that it used to have uh, to being a share of the income tax. And now it's really just, you know, an appropriation by the legislature, just like all the other appropriations that they make for school aid and universities and prisons and so forth. Even though the money is, is still coming from... Well, it's all coming from us, the taxpayers, but that's true of all the other money that they, <laughs> that they spend, too. Sure. So what's next for this? Well, really, you know, as we discussed, uh, the question will be whether the city chooses to sue or whether they choose to make do. I understand that uh, Milwaukee Public Schools has not yet come through with a plan for how they're going to bring the police back into the schools, which they really didn't want to do, and they weren't even part of this negotiation. And I know that there are aldermen and other city officials who are also looking at how to pay for streetcar expansion with the new restrictions of not being able to use tax incremental financing districts, which were the primary way of paying for it. Uh, and so that's really the choice that the city is going to have is, do you challenge it in court? Do you try to lobby to get the legislature to change it? Or do you just fi figure out some ways to make do? Sure. Well, Larry, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect, sharing your work. I, I look forward to seeing what happens. Thank you, Joy. It's been a pleasure. Sandler is a local writer whose piece on home rule was featured in this month's Milwaukee Magazine. 
At wuwm.com, you can find all of our previous conversations with Milwaukee Magazine writers. powerful force and a universal language. Whether it's classical Mozart or hip-hop, when people hear music, we often have an instinctual urge to move our bodies. Dr. Kajana Satkadendaraja is an associate professor of neurosurgery and a member of MCW's Neuroscience Research Center. She recently discovered that neurons can respond to music. That discovery led to a national grant to examine how music can help neurons dance, potentially helping patients recover and restore basic body movements after spinal cord injury. Dr. Set Kadendaraja joins Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski to talk about the discovery. She begins by explaining the relationship between music and our physical movement. The connection between brain and music has been known for a long time. And even if you see a baby, you know, if you play some music, they will respond with movement. So we know there is a music movement connection. But what we haven't known for a long time is how is this music transformed to movement? That's really the focus of the research in our lab. And we have known that music can influence the brain. And a lot of that knowledge comes from imaging studies and studies that use electrophysiology. So we're looking at a group of neurons that are acting together or areas of the brain that light up in response to music. And then we find or identify areas of the brain that are involved in movement. And we make correlations about how music could affect the brain. However, we don't know how exactly music is transformed to movement and why some species move differently and why as humans we move differently and how some of us have different abilities to move. So that's still an unknown question in the field. So in your research, you discovered a, a key finding that has influenced your work today, that neurons in our brains play a crucial role in initiating movement and also respond to discrete aspects of music. So before we get into the music component, um, can you just share more about this key discovery you made and how you found it? Yeah, we know that there are different areas in the brain that initiate movement. And movement is a very critical part of, you know, living things. Like me just having to get up and get dressed and come sit and have this conversation with you involved a lot of complex uh, movement, which we really rarely put a thought to. And this is coordinated by many regions in the brain. And there's one region in the brain, for example, the sensory cortex, which we kind of overlook because it's not called motor cortex, because it's the region of the brain that gathers all the information about where we are and where we are about to go, what we're seeing, what we're hearing. We know that all of these information is very critical to our movement. If you don't know where your cup is right in front of you, you wouldn't be able to grab that cup of coffee in the morning. So what we discovered in 2020 and published was that the sensory cortex, contrary to what's taught in the textbooks, that this region that has all this information about our auditory, visual, and our somatosensory information can actually effect movement, that is cause movement. So that was a paradigm shift finding. And from there, 
I was still left with a lot of questions. Why is this pathway there? And why would these neurons in the sensory cortex, which possess information about where we are, where we are about to go, and what kinds of sensory information that's flowing into the brain, why was this pathway there in the first place? And how is this neurons communicating with the rest of the brain to affect movement? In doing this study, we accidentally discovered that these neurons that can affect movement was responding to different types of auditory cues much faster with a shorter latency than we had anticipated. So that was really the impetus to study music in association with the discovery for our pathway. So you said it was a shift. So it's kind of like we thought this was the chain of command from our brains to the things we execute. And now here's this other pathway that we didn't know about. Is that correct? Yeah. And actually, the only time that this pathway or potential for this pathway to have an efferent motor control was described was in a mouse whisker movement. So in the barrel cortex, which is a similar analogous sensory cortex, which receives information about the whiskers, uh, the sensation, can actually cause the whiskers to move. But what we showed for the first time that this area of the brain that can integrate auditory, visual, and um, sensory information can actually affect our walking, which is an important finding for human beings as we know that many neurological conditions can have an impact, negatively impact our ability to walk. So here is a pathway that uses the senses to guide walking. So that was a really exciting finding for us. Definitely. Before we get into the therapeutical um, aspects of this research, can you describe a bit more about how you observe and measure how these neurons dance, so to speak? So neuroscience has advanced so much in the last decade uh, or so. And uh, one of the techniques that we use in our lab is that we actually specifically express an indicator. So you can kind of call it like a dye, but it's specifically expressed in these neurons. And only the neurons that are part of the circuit. So if um, you can liken it to uh, not globally expressing it, but just in the neurons of our interest. And what happens to these indicators is that they change color in response to their activity level. So they'd be not fluorescing if they're quiet and they're not active, but when they're active, it's like lightning, they flash. And it's quite exciting to see these neurons flash in front of your eyes. So what we do is we do multiple surgeries to express these indicators in specific targeted neurons. And then we implant a small lens, which then can be attached to a mini microscope. And for the first time, we don't have to anesthetize these mice. They are actually walking around freely, doing various behaviors. So we actually can observe the animal sitting in a corner and deciding to get up and walk or eat or groom or do various exercises or uh, skill tasks. Um, and then we can actually associate the neuronal firing. So pretty much decode what the neurons are doing based on the behavior. And um, that's how we discovered that there are neurons that fire just prior to the animal decides to move and then continue to fire. So they're not just preparing for movement, but they're also part of the execution 
as they're continuing to be active even after the movement. And these same neurons will be completely quiet when the animal is rearing or doing something else. So we know that it's specifically involved in initiating movement. And that's one of the techniques that we use to study the activity. And this is how we discovered the so-called dance neurons. Gotcha. So you and your research team were recently awarded a significant grant from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke to dedicate more research to this area. So you mentioned you made that initial key discovery in 2020. Now, what do you hope you can do with these additional resources to take that key discovery and then apply it to something else or learn more? What's your goal? So... My passion is to restore movement after neurological disorders. And in particular, I've been working in spinal cord injury space for a long time. And we still don't have a cure where we can actually cure paralysis after spinal cord injury to be able to restore walking. And as I told you before, there is the sensory cortex and the motor cortex. And we all assume that the motor cortex is the region that would be stimulated or modulated to restore walking. But we haven't gotten a cure where we can actually stimulate those centers and have spinal cord injured patients get up and walk. And when I discovered that the sensory cortex could potentially be even more important or potentially even in parallel, just as important as the motor cortex, I thought, what if in some patients where the motor cortex, the pathway may be, not intact, but the sensory cortical locomotor pathway could be intact. So then it gives me uh, an opportunity to tap into this pathway to restore walking after spinal cord injury. So that was what the grant was for. So the grant is actually to really further delineate this pathway, understand more about it, because I think discovery is really important because we can't just test treatments. We need to further understanding of these pathways and see how we can manipulate. So part of the grant is to see how can we modulate this pathway so that we can potentially have a personalized treatment for spinal cord injury patients. For example, if uh, the motor cortex or some of the other brainstem spinal cord pathways are not intact in a particular patient, However, if this pathway is intact, then it gives us an opportunity to modulate this pathway and restore total movement or partial movement after spinal cord injury. And um, one of the key questions that um, often I'm asked is, uh, how is, uh, is this pathway that I've discovered in the rodents, is it similar in the patients? So we are really excited because we've started some recordings. So similar to what I told you about um, finding these neurons in the brain, We're actually recording from uh, patients um, that are undergoing other surgeries to see if the similar pathway that is related to movement exists in patients. And we're also going to see if stimulating this pathway can actually initiate movement, as we've seen in the rodents. So there's really, I feel really excited at the prospects of translating this to restore walking in spinal cord injury patients. Yeah, that was exactly going to be along the lines of my next question, like translating the rodent brain to ours and how that works. So you mentioned you are recruiting people who are already undergoing surgery to collect data. Ideally, and nothing is quick when it comes to thorough research, right, and trials. What's your ideal timeline, or at least how do you hope to recruit people to help you collect human data? 
Um, I think it's really important to have a lot of crosstalk between scientists who are in the basic science space uh, with clinicians and clinician scientists. So I'm really fortunate to be part of a neurosurgical department at the medical college, which means that I'm in contact with other physicians and surgeons who have access to patients. And I also take a lot of effort to disseminate my research, not just to other scientists, but also to clinicians who are treating the caregivers of spinal cord injury patients. So I'm actually motivated to get them involved, to be able to really understand my research so that we can actually form these partnerships where we're actually taking basic science to bedside by translating some of these findings in um, clinical research and then ultimately to treatments. Dr. Kajana Satkadendaraja is an associate professor of neurosurgery and a member of the Medical College of Wisconsin's Neuroscience Research Center. She spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. In about 15 minutes, we'll learn about the physics of sledding, from the kind of sled you should use to the best snow conditions. So extremely fresh snow is actually going to have a higher coefficient of friction. It will exert a higher frictional force. The snow has been sitting for a little while. So very fresh snow is not going to be as fast as snow that's been sitting for a little while. But first, we'll speak with a social media influencer who's working to empower women and queer people to learn car care and maintenance. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Car trouble and car questions can cause a lot of stress for drivers. For some, learning how to maintain a car is a bit of a mystery. And when it comes to needing repairs, things can get expensive and confusing. Kaya Milstein is a Milwaukee-based automotive educator, social media influencer, and writer who's working to make cars less complicated, especially for women and queer people. She creates educational content on social media and on her blog, Mechanic Shop Femme, to give car owners easy-to-understand information. Milstein joins WUWM's Eric Von fellow Nadia Kelly to talk about car myths, sexism in the automotive industry, and her new book. On the internet, you go by Mechanic Shop Femme. And I was just wondering, what is Mechanic Shop Femme? What type of topics do you talk about underneath that name? So Mechanic Shop Feb was my handle on Instagram when I started my blog. I thought a lot about it, and I was like, oh, what should I call it? I want to make sure that I bring my whole self to this work, because working in shops, it's not exactly um, the most welcoming or enjoyable environment to work in, especially as a fat queer woman. So I wanted to make sure whatever I did was going to bring all parts of me into the job. So mechanic shop, because I talk about car repairs and femme, because that's what I am. And I sort of put it together. And I primarily cover automotive ownership from every angle. So from buying a car to selling the car to insuring the car to car maintenance, how to find a mechanic and 
everything in between if it involves regular people going about their daily lives with their regular vehicle. That's what I'm about. Did you previously work as a mechanic? I worked for about seven and a half years in the repair and collision industry. I primarily worked a customer-facing job where I worked with the people who came in to fix their cars. So I was like the intermediary, or how I like to put it as like the mechanic interpreter. So I would take the information the customer gave me to the mechanic, and then I would bring that information back to the customer. Is this what initially sparked your passion for um, car ownership, um, stuff like that? When I started in the automotive industry, I did not know anything about cars. I used to say I didn't know a bumper from an oil change, and it was 100% true. In fact, when I interviewed for the job, I interviewed for a job at Sears department store, and then they asked me what department I wanted to work in, and like a true Capricorn, I said, whichever one makes the most money. (laughs) They offered automotive or appliances, and... Automotive sounded more interesting, so of course they followed up with, so do you have a driver's license? And my answer was no. Did not have a driver's license. Got my driver's license for the job at Sears Auto Center, the the one that used to be in Glendale and Bayshore. And then I started, and it kind of just ended up being a natural fit. Like, it certainly wasn't something that I thought I was going to do long term. I thought this was a job where I was going to make enough money to put a roof over my head. You know, I had just aged out of the foster care system and I was, I needed work. It was 2013. There wasn't a huge amount of jobs available. My experience didn't serve me in any kind of like customer service or restaurant types of jobs. I couldn't even get interviews there. So just getting this job was huge. And once I got it, kind of like the rest was history, as they say. What was it that you liked so much about this experience? If you've ever heard like an English teacher or math teacher say, you know, they live for the light bulb moment where they're teaching something to their students and it doesn't make any sense to them. And then all of a sudden, click, you know, the light bulb goes off and you can see it in their eyes like, oh, I understand now. Like, this makes sense. That was kind of how it was for me. Uh, So that's definitely one element to it. But it's also just bringing this basic information. Like, I'm not teaching how to take apart your car or any kind of fancy information. I'm bringing the basics that everybody should know that they should have been taught, that they were often not taught because they were queer and their parents were worried about making them unqueer instead of setting them up to survive in life or because they were women and their parents didn't think that that information was appropriate to teach them or important to teach them. And I want to bring this basic knowledge to everyday consumers because when you go into the shop and you come in and you already expect the worst and you already think that everybody is going to scam you, I'm trying to show people how to navigate through the challenges that are there, giving them the tools necessary to better understand their cars, to better understand mechanics, to know what kind of questions to ask. Things that make people's lives easier and better. In most of this country, we have to have a car in order to have access to better job opportunities, be able to take on more jobs. I remember when I was 18, I um, I didn't have a driver's license and I didn't have a car and I was trying to find a job and my foster parents lived in Glendale in an area which wasn't accessible by bus and it was very complicated and very difficult and I strongly believe that getting that first car really helped me move out of poverty if I wouldn't have had that opportunity to take on more jobs to go further away to be able to have access to these 
to these career opportunities, then I wouldn't have gotten to my next step. And for a lot of people, it's like that. Could you tell me more about just like the type of impact that you want to have with the way you educate people about cars, especially as it relates to inclusivity? Have you ever heard of blinker fluid? No. Okay. A common thing that most people who have don't know anything about cars here from mechanics and car people and YouTube videos is blinker fluid. Blinker fluid is nonsense. It doesn't exist. It's been invented by the gatekeeping car bros and car enthusiasts and industry people to make fun of people who want to know more about their car, who want to fix their car. So they'll be like, oh, don't forget to replace your blinker fluid or other kind of stuff. But blinker fluid doesn't exist. It's fake. It doesn't exist. Because people think it's funny, but it's not funny because it is the... It's like the word that's like the tip of the iceberg that's wrong with the industry, right? I approach my work, my book, my videos, all elements of what I do by trying to think of how it will impact the most amount of people and how I can be inclusive to the most amount of people, particularly to the people that have not been included in these conversations and in these education opportunities and in this industry historically since the beginning of time. Wow. Thanks for sharing that example for me. I think it really clarifies how your work is countering the existing frustrations that people encounter when they're trying to learn about something. One of the most impactful articles I feel like I've written um, over the last couple of years is an article about sexism in the automotive industry and how it's impacting the number of mechanics available to repair cars. Because think about it, if you go into a shop as a queer person or as a woman or as a person of color, because that's a whole other conversation to have, if you go into the shop as a marginalized person and you're treated like crap, the likelihood that you will then go enter that industry or you'll talk to your friends or siblings or children about entering that industry is pretty much none. And we have a massive shortage of mechanics in this country at this moment, a huge shortage. There's not enough people to fix cars, and mechanics don't work to the same age that many other industries do because of the impacts on your body that this type of work has. So there's a shortage, and that shortage is only getting bigger. And that shortage could be simply fixed by including over 50% of the population that is now being excluded from those opportunities. So I wrote an article about that talking about experiences of sexism that people have had while working in shops. If you're a woman and you walk into a shop and you're treated poorly or oversold products or you aren't explained services and stuff like that. Now imagine how it is to work as a woman in those same places. So if shops become better for their employees, they will also become better for their customers and vice versa. Thinking about the work that you're doing in educating, you are currently in the process of writing a book? I am thankfully done. (laughs) Done writing the book. The book is available for pre-order now. It comes out on April 9th. Could you tell us a little bit about what someone could expect to find if they pick up the book? Sure. So the book is like 
putting the last decade of my automotive experience into one concise, easy to read, easy to understand guide to car ownership. This is not intended to be the only part of your car ownership experience. Like it's intended to be used in conjunction with a good mechanic and things like that. Um, And it starts by telling you how to buy a car. And then moving into how to insure that car, and then how to find a mechanic for that car, and then how to maintain that vehicle, what maintenance you should do yourself, what maintenance you should do at the mechanic. Well, obviously, you could do whatever maintenance you want by yourself, but given the people who will be reading my book, most people will be more interested in that. So let's say, you know, your old car is kind of on its last legs, there's a lot of problems with it, and you are deciding whether you need to replace it. You go to the section where I talk about how to decide if it's time to move on. And then you make your decision at the end of that. And then you could go to the chapter where how to sell your car. And then you could go to the chapter on how to buy another vehicle. And it all kind of works hand in hand. You said this a little bit earlier about how you really like helping people have those light bulb moments. I was really curious if you had a memorable light bulb moment where you were giving someone advice and everything became really clear to them. Sometimes I make videos about stuff that people have heard exactly the opposite information and share like why this is necessary. For example, my brand partner iFixit sponsored a video on winter car myths, like all kinds of stuff related to winter because you know, especially in Wisconsin, but anywhere where it's cold, people have a lot of things that they've heard over the years that they need to do with their car don't need to do with their car when it's cold because cold weather and car breakdowns really scare people. So often these things are rooted in a bit of truth, but they have at some point lost their truth to them. The one that people really are like, oh my God, what is warming up your car? You don't need to warm up your car. It's not necessary. It was Warming up your car was something that was necessary when you had carbureted vehicles. So like the early 90s. For the most part, cars today do not need to be warmed up. You turn your car on, you put your seatbelt on. By that time, 30 seconds elapses and you are good to go. There's no reason for you to continue warming up your vehicle. In fact, sitting in your car and idling your vehicle or letting your car idle in the driveway while you're sitting in your house is bad for the environment. Here's the misconception with people. One group of people have been told they have to warm up their car for their engine and it's terrible to do it otherwise. And another group of people thinks warming up your car is for your comfort and not for the car. And of course, you can do whatever you need to do for your comfort. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about warming up the car for the sake of the car. Not necessary. So lots of light bulb moments around that. Now I'm sort of reflecting on all that I've been told about cars and how much of it may or may not be accurate. Why do you think that there is so many myths out there that people don't think twice about checking if it's accurate or not? Misogyny, racism, homophobia. They're so busy trying to gatekeep cars from more than half the population that if a man says something, then obviously the man is right. And the worst part of all of this is that Most of the time, the man is wrong because these things negatively impact men, too. It doesn't just people think, oh, sexism, it's just about the women or racism. It's just about the people of color. No, these things impact every single person. When you block half the population from automotive knowledge, 
you are also blocking every single man that doesn't know anything about cars because now cars are tied to your masculinity. If you ask a question about cars to your mechanic and it's a silly question, then you are looked at as less of a man or you might feel like you're less of a man because you're going to ask this question. But that hurts you too. So you pick up some myths from somebody, you hear something on the internet, you don't ask clarifying questions, then you teach your kids that and you teach your spouse that. People say my book's for teenagers. It is, but it's also not. It's for women in their 50s and 60s that have recently gotten divorced or their spouses have passed who've never taken their car in for an oil change. It's for queer folks and women who never had the opportunity to learn these types of subjects or they learned them from somebody who didn't know what they were talking about. Perpetuating this, you know, these continued myths. And it's for men. It's for men who don't feel like they can ask the questions, that they don't feel like they have the information because it's emasculating. Kaya Milstein is an automotive educator and the author of Mechanic Shop Femme's Guide to Car Ownership. She spoke with WUWM's Eric Vaughn fellow Nadia Kelly. You can find a link to Milstein's blog at wuwm.com. We want to hear from you as we gear up to cover local elections and the presidential election in November. You can have a say in our 2024 election coverage by filling out our election survey. You can find the link at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM. We'll tell you about the best conditions for good sledding next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. With all of the snow we're getting this week, maybe you're thinking about dusting off that sled and hitting the hills. We usually don't think too much about sledding outside of where we'll go and if we're dressed properly, but this winter activity can double as a lesson in physics. From the right temperature for the best speeds to the kind of sled you use, Dr. Jack Sanders, assistant professor of physics at Marquette University, helps break down some key sledding physics concepts with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. There are basic physics principles called Newton's laws, and one of them is, is that Every action exerts an equal opposite reaction. Um, if I push on the air, the air has to push on me. So the air is much smaller than I am. Molecules are very small, so I push them out of the way very easily. But they still slow me down a little bit. And there's a lot more air molecules than there are me. Air and resistance I, is all of, the, all of the force that the air is exerting on me as I'm moving. And I'm thinking when it also comes to sledding, um, say it's a windy day, does that add some complications to air resistance? Yeah, there will be additional forces from uh, the wind pushing on you as well. Uh, actually, this idea of air resistance and the technical physics term is fluid dynamics is for the entire field. It is actually one of the most complicated fields of physics mathematically. Um, this is a fun, one of my fun facts I like talking about is that quite literally you cannot do this using just math, just, just a pen and paper and occasional calculator use. You do need to model this with the computer and code. 
So you could not have done this without computers. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. So the next basic term we're going to go through is aerodynamics. Aerodynamics is an expression of how much you have an air resistance interaction. So if you are aerodynamic, you have less air resistance interaction. In general, the fastest way you can get a good idea of whether something is to be aerodynamic or not is if it is presenting a small cross-section to the direction of travel. Basically, if you look at the direction something is traveling and you see how big it is, it will probably have a low air resistance interaction or will be highly aerodynamic. Shape also matters. If something is pointy in the direction it's traveling, it will have a lower air resistance interaction. If something is flat, it will have a higher air resistance interaction. This is quantified in a coefficient of drag, um, which runs from like zero to a little over one, typically. But you tend to have to calculate that using modeling for every single object. So it's something where I probably can't tell you what your coefficient of drag is, because <laughs> it's probably very, very variable, depending on what shape you are holding your body in at the time. One thing that I think uh, we all can definitely know the feeling of when we're sledding or even in everyday life is friction. Where does friction apply with sledding? Yeah, so friction is interactions between surfaces. Surfaces are rough. Even very smooth surfaces have a little bit of roughness. And that means that there's going to be a transfer of energy between the surfaces. So if your hands are getting cold and you rub them together and your hands heat up, that's because you are using the frictional interaction between your hands to create heat to warm up your hands. So when you're looking at a surface, interaction between surfaces, that frictional force between the surfaces will also slow things down. And this is what will actually slow you to a stop when you are sledding, the frictional interaction between your sled and the snow. Now, the reason we sled on snow instead of on ground is because there is less friction between snow and a sled than there is between ground and a sled. Right, and that kind of leads into another question I have, that when it comes to friction and resistance, does the kind of snow make a difference in how much farther and faster we'll move down a hill when we're sledding? Yeah, it does. So snow, if you actually look at it very, very closely under a microscope, it is made of a bunch of tiny little crystals. So very fresh snow is actually pointy. So extremely fresh snow is actually going to have a higher coefficient of friction. It will exert a higher frictional force. The snow has been sitting for a little while. So very fresh snow is not going to be as fast as snow that's been sitting for a little while. Also, the actual effect that is going to be reducing your friction while you're sledding or skiing or any sort of sliding sport on snow, you don't actually touch the snow. What actually happens is when you are sliding on the snow, having that little bit of heat, just remember you're rubbing your hands together, friction causes heat, you're melting the top layer of snow into water. So if you are melting the top layer of snow into water, you're making this little bed of water to float on. So you're floating on a tiny little bed of water. And this effect works best between about 32 Fahrenheit and 14 Fahrenheit. So if it's hotter than 32 Fahrenheit, it melts too much and you're basically inside of a puddle. And Moving it's a little slower. too slow. Yeah. yeah okay. And if, it's, uh, if, if you go below 14 Fahrenheit, it's too cold for this effect to happen and you don't get this melt water effect. If you wanted to have a consistent slickness, you do what professional skiers do and you wax the bottom of your sled or about on your skis. 
the best way to do this with a household object would be either using a candle or with WD-40, um, if you like, if you can handle the smell of WD-40, which you may or may sure. not. <laughs> <laughs> I assume maybe waxing our sleds might be something we're going to do while we're bored in quarantine here. But um, <laughs> maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. With everyday sleds that you'll see at a park or a local sledding hill, you know, is the kind of sled we use important when it comes to aerodynamics or how fast we're going to pick up speed you know there's options not just in design but materials you have your standard like longer rectangular sleds you have toboggans you have inflatable tubes does this matter if say you know our weight is the same and it's our force that's being put down so this is something where this is a it's a lot of variables so you may want to do some testing of your own because it, this is all getting at materials the way materials interact with surfaces depends a lot on temperature so one thing I found when I was reading about the Iditarod in preparation for this is that now the Iditarod uses almost entirely different kinds of plastics, but previously they would use steel for some temperatures and wood for other temperatures. I think wood was for colder and steel was for warmer. Um, there was also a journal article I read where uh, ER trauma medics went and just measured a whole bunch of people going down hills, and they saw that a whole bunch of people on air tubes were going for about two miles per hour on faster on average. But they didn't really control for many variables. So maybe you should go out and do some experiments of your own calling, trying to control for variables because I wasn't super impressed with the variables. Right. So it sounds like there's definitely room for our own experimentation. But when it comes to, say, overall tips and tricks, what would you recommend to someone of how to best go? If you want to go fast, go back to the idea of that coefficient of drag and that coefficient of friction. So you want to be on snow that is in that, in that nice 14 to 32 Fahrenheit sweet spot, which is coincidentally a really great temperature to be outside if in the winter. And you want to try and make your body as pointy as possible with the smallest cross-sectional area to the direction of travel. So if you want to go fast down a sled hill, look at the people who are doing sled sports. So if you go and look at people who are doing skeleton and who are doing luge and doing bobsled, and look at how they shape their bodies when they are trying to go down a hill fast. People who are doing luge aren't sitting straight up like they're in a chair. They're lying back. So if you want to go faster, lean back in your sled. Well, certainly a lot for us to think about and experiment in a Wisconsin winter season that will last plenty long. So Jax, I want to thank you so much for uh, sharing the physics of sledding with us today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm happy to do so. Dr. Jack Sanders is an assistant professor of physics at Marquette University. They spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski in 2021. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. The nonpartisan Wisconsin Policy Forum puts out a lot of public policy research and analysis each year. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll look back on some of their most surprising findings in education, slowing crime rates in Milwaukee and marijuana access. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect. On listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.